0: Well, let's stand together. We're going to read verses 13 through 15. Just a short passage today, but Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Let's read. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, Lord, would you give us hearts that are humble, teachable? Help us, Lord, to see you in all your glory. We have sung your praises this morning, Lord. We have adored you for who you are. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, may we continue, um, Lord, to to seek to understand um, exactly who it is that has drawn us to himself, May we see you afresh in all your wonder and majesty and glory. And may our lives and our hearts be affected by that. And Lord, those that may not know you or are struggling to know you, may, Lord, they have a better understanding of why it is that we worship a God like you and why you are the foundation, not only for the gospel, but for our lives. Give us strength and give us wisdom. Allow me simply to be your messenger, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you're looking to put a roof on your house, you'll go out, you'll find a hopefully reputable company, and they'll sit down with you and say, well, you can have a 15-year roof, you can have a 25-year roof, you can have a 50-year roof. And what they mean by that is we're, we're guaranteeing that this roof will do its job for 15 years, for 25 years, for 50 years, depending on the materials of the roof. Um, and if anything happens during that time, whichever one you choose, we're guaranteeing that it will remain and that we will be there to fix it if anything happens. You may go out one day and look for some jewelry, and you'll go to a particular jeweler, and you'll see something that sparkles and shines, and it's wonderful, and it's beautiful, and they, as a selling point, will say to you, this piece of jewelry is guaranteed for life. Anything happens to it, any, I would say, problem with the manufacturing, um, with the setting, We'll take care of it. We'll clean it. We guarantee it. And then you want to move from one side of the country to the other. So you're going to look for a bank that's closer to where you live. Some of you have done that. You go into a bank and they say, you can put your money here and you might get a little bit of interest, but we want you to know that we are secured by the FDIC. It guarantees that your money is safe with us. And you're like, oh, that's good. But friends, here's the problem. Your roof may blow off any time. Only to find out that the company that installed your roof has gone out of business. So much for that guarantee. Your piece of jewelry, something might happen to it. And you go to the jewelry store, and they show you in the fine print why what it is that's the problem with your piece of jewelry actually does not fit under their guarantee. And you find out that your bank is shutting down because of the mismanagement of funds. And not only that, your country is in disarray. And the value of your money means nothing. That's what happened in Venezuela. The guarantee of a country is only as good as the health of the country. And the FDIC should be good as long as America is solid. There are no real guarantees, friends. But friends, as we come to our text today, the central reality that we're going to see is that God backs up his word and his will with himself. He is the guarantee. And that is what he is going to be speaking and saying, even when we say shouting from the burning bush. And this is something that Moses needs to hear. And it's something that we need to be reminded of that when God speaks and he communicates his will that he backs it up with himself. Or to put it a little differently, all who are instructed by God through his word to do his will must find their strength in him. And in him alone. Now friends, this is, this is foundational to the gospel. This is foundational to the promises that we have in God's word. God gives us his truth. He promises us certain things. And the only guarantee that those things actually will take place is God himself. So this God must be a great God indeed. Now friends, our text today begins with a reasonable question. I'm sure that as you've read through the story, part of the concern you have that comes a little bit later in the story is Moses' reluctance to actually go and speak. And sometimes I think we might read some of that back into the text here. And certainly there's an aspect of Moses dealing with his weakness. And let me remind you what we looked at last week. In last week's text, it ended up at the end of chapter 2, where we're asking the question... I should say, ending of uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we're, we're ending with the question where, where uh, Moses is saying, well, who am I? God said, I'm going to send you to your people into Egypt, and you're going to speak the word that I have announced. And he's like, well, well who am I? Remember, God told Moses of his compassion for his people. I've seen the affliction. I've heard their cry. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them. And to bring them out of the land, to a good land, flowing with milk and honey. And God calls Moses to serve him. And Moses is like, well, who am I? I'm, I, I'm simply a shepherd. A shepherd. And probably thinking back to his time in Egypt, he's a failure. Not only that, he's 80 years old, for crying out loud. Who am I? And do you remember how God responds to Moses' question? He doesn't stoop down with a big hug and seek to build Moses' self esteem, he doesn't fill him with empty platitudes. You've just got to be you, Moses. Go out there and be you. Or you can do anything, Moses, if you just put your mind to it. It's not what God does. He doesn't focus on Moses, his strengths, or his weaknesses. Hear this. Moses' strengths and weaknesses are not significant. They are irrelevant. And that's why he says... I will be with you. God answers to Moses' weakness was to say, Moses, it's not about you, it's about me. And I will be with you. You see, Moses was pointing to his own insufficiency. Who am I? And God points back to his all-sufficiency by saying, I will be with you. And it was a reminder for us, friends, that it doesn't matter who you are or what your capabilities are. What matters is that God has called you and he is the one who will support you in the task that he has allotted to you. Or to put it differently, when we have the assurance that we have the presence of the Lord with us, then we can be certain that all will be well with us wherever we go. Now, I I wanted to remind you of that because we have this question, who am I? But now as we come to this text, the question is, who are you? (laughs) That was Moses' first concern, who am I? But here, verse 13, notice what it says. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Who are you? Now, there's some issues we have to consider here. Number one, is this question or concern a lack of faith by Moses? I mean, God has revealed himself to Moses. He's identified him as the God of his father and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So, you know, the wheels are turning and they're starting to click and they're starting to come together and you might come to the conclusion that even as Moses has connected the dots that he shouldn't even be asking this question. God has spoken. God has commanded. He should just do. And certainly there's an aspect there that that would be true. So is, is, it, is it true that this is a lack of faith? Possibly. But I would like to... Maybe ask another question. Is this a reasonable question? And we have to start thinking a little bit here about what is happening. Just imagine Moses going back to Egypt and leading, uh, seeking to, to, to talk with the people there. And he says this, Guys, I know that I've been gone for a while. And that when I left, we were not on good terms with me killing that Egyptian and all. But here's the deal. I was out in the wilderness one day, minding my own business and tending the sheep, and a voice spoke to me out of a burning bush and told me that I had to come to you and speak these words to you. Now, you can imagine the response that he was anticipating. Moses, so uh, you've been a shepherd out in the wilderness for 40 years, out in the sun all that time, apparently. Um. Are you feeling okay? I mean, you are 80 years at all. Maybe you're kind of losing it a little bit. Maybe you're seeing things and hearing things. How do we know that what you're saying is true? See, I think there's some reasonableness to this question. Now, the reason Moses asked for God's name is because when we look in the Old Testament, the name of someone often designates the character of the person. When we think about Moses, it means to draw out. When we think about the name of Abraham, it means father of multitudes. When we think about the name Jacob, it means supplanter. And he certainly lived up to his name when he supplanted his older brother Esau by conniving his way into obtaining his father's blessing. When we think about Benjamin, it's an interesting story. Rachel has given birth and she's dying, and she names her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. It's a wonderful picture. But then Jacob changes his name Not Ben-Oni, but Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. These weren't just names that were picked out of a book at random. These are names that mean something. So most often, the name chosen for a person embodies their character, the kind of person that they will become, the kind of character they may embrace, When we name our children, we often hope that they will live into a name. But God is sovereign. He chooses names that embody what the people will become. He has the right to cause anyone to become what their name implies. The name he gives are sure indicators of the destiny of those people. And when God names himself we may be sure that the name is packed with who he is and what he intends to do. God does not choose names for himself that are random. The names that he chooses for himself are there to help us understand who he is, so that we can grow in our love for him. We can enlarge our admiration for him. We can strengthen our faith because of what we know about him. So Moses is asking for a revelation of God's character so that Israel may know that the one who has called Moses to deliver a message is sufficient, that he is able to achieve the deliverance promised. If he wants to be able to face his people not just with a story, but with a name. This is who spoke to me. Not the bush, not the wilderness, but the very God of Israel has spoken. So there's something similar, friends, to what I am doing every Sunday morning. I seek to preach the word of God not my own thoughts, although my thoughts do tend to get in there. But my, my goal is to teach and to preach God's thoughts. And honestly, friends, I'm, I'm not a natural public speaker. I'm not funny. I don't have great words of wisdom that will, will inspire people to do great things. I'm simply a shepherd called by God to speak his word. And some of the reality, friends, is that Moses was one of the first, probably the first preacher called by God to proclaim his truth. And the only reason I can do what I'm doing is because I have something to say that's not what I said, but because God said it, and I've got to communicate it. See, you don't want to hear from me. What you, what you are hungering for, you may realize it, don't, you, know, you may not realize it, what you're hungering for is to hear from God. And Moses is here with a message from God to give to his people, and he wants to make sure he can communicate to them who it is that has given him this message. So it's a reasonable question. So from a reasonable question, we move now to what I'm calling a formidable answer. And I just want to quickly go over the structure of what happens here in verses 14 and 15. You have, first of all, God's answer here to Moses. I am who I am. We'll get into what that means in just a minute. But then he says, now this is what you say to Israel. Say to this people, or to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So we move from I am who I am to I am. And then, in verse 15, we have kind of like a summarized answer that God gives here. Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. If if you're just reading through this text, you're like, Man, how many times does God have to say, or the narrator have to say, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Well, he says it to let us know the reader, the original audience, this is what God is doing. Then he says it again to identify himself to Moses. And now he's going to tell Moses to say the very same thing to Israel. Right? And he says, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So these are the three answers. This is a structure of what's going on in the text. But what I'd like to do is i like to kind of think through now what we have here and kind of press it and squeeze it to to, to really grasp what is in these names. God reveals himself. Now first of all, I want you to notice the word God. It's throughout this text, isn't it? God says, the God of your fathers. And that idea, that word God is the word Elohim. It's the generic name for God that is used in the Hebrew language. Elohim. Elohim. Then there's also the next one, and it's the word Lord, and it's Yahweh. In your Bible, it's there with a capital L and lower capital O R D, and it actually is the proper name for the God of Israel. It is the, uh, the might want well say the new way of saying Yahweh. The Hebrew writers, scribes, did not want to chance disrespecting God by writing his name, Yahweh. So they replaced it with the word Adonai. And that word Adonai is this word, Lord. But Adonai is there to represent the word or the name Yahweh. I realize this is technical. If you have an ESV Bible and you look in the front and it's interesting, you know, sometimes we don't even do this. But if you look in the front of your Bible, under um, the, just the area of contents here, and I'm looking at the preface, and it says the translation of specialized terms, it'll walk you through these details so that you know why words are chosen and names are chosen in particular and used in a certain way. So this is not like, you know, strange stuff. This is basic understanding of how the language is used in the text that we have. Now, the point here is to say this, that this word Lord is referring to Yahweh. It is Yahweh. Now, we could be technical if we wanted to retranslate this, and every time the word Lord is translated, just replace it with Yahweh. That is the name of God. Okay? Then we have, I am who I am. Now remember that God, the voice, is still speaking from the burning bush. And this, this word, I am who I am, can also be translated, I will be what I will be, or I create whatever I create. God's response here is not a name that makes God an object or a definition or a limitation. Rather, it's an affirmation that God is always free to be and to act as God wills. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, that would be the Old Testament, the same expression is translated, I am the one who is. Which means, I am being. So what does I am who I am mean? What is it revealing? My friends, it's both an explanation, and then ultimately it will be a name. And I would like for us to walk through just an understanding of what this expression means and how then ultimately this is important, not only for the context, but even throughout Scripture. So first of all, it's an explanation. And as an explanation, I think I have seven descriptions here of what this expression is seeking to identify. I am who I am. First of all, it is letting us know that God exists. That God is there. And we know that air is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. We know certain things, but we function as if we don't know those things. We, in other words, we've forgotten about it. We just breathe, right? Right? Imagine if you were, and your friends were invited to the White House for a special dinner reception with the president. And you ended up getting to the White House, and you walked into this room, and you saw all this incredible food. Hopefully it's not McDonald's, right? It's actually other stuff. And you see the food, and you go over the food, and you see over in the corner, there's the president. He's sitting down by the fireplace, and you talk with your friends, you eat the food, you look at the architecture, you, you look at the furniture, you're amazed by by the, the presence of, of being in the White House, but you never once talk to the president. You've seen him, you acknowledge him, he exists, but you're all focused on the food and your friends and everything else. You didn't even bother to ask him, why did you invite us to the White House? So, if anyone asked you, so do you believe that the president exists? Your answer would be, of course he does. I had dinner at the White House the other day and he was there. You believe that he exists, but you didn't take any time to talk with him. You act as if you do not believe that he exists. In fact, although you have been invited, you have ignored him. Yes, he exists but I don't care to talk to him. And friends, that is how the vast majority of people treat God. They say that they believe that he exists. They may appreciate his invitations. They they are thankful for the blessings that he gives by virtue of his common grace and his common kindness to mankind. But they have no desire or intentions to actually interact with him. Give me something, but don't hold me accountable for anything. But friends, God exists. I am means I exist. Secondly, not only does he exist, but in his existence, he is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. God's personality and power are owing solely to himself and no other think back before the world or the universe was created where did god come from how did god get to be the way he is my friends if you asked me how i got to be the way i am i probably would answer you like well i had a mother and i had a father and because of that there were some genes and you know i was created and then i grew up in this Home and in this home, we had certain beliefs and certain attitudes towards life, and those affected my behavior. Um, those affected my own personal beliefs. and then where I live, where different cultures and those different cultures shaped my thinking and my understanding and my view of the world, that's how I ended up becoming the way that I am. But when we ask God how He got to be who He is, He answers, "I am who I am. I am." self-existent. In other words, nobody gave him a set of genes. No person, no power or force brought him to existence and shaped his personality. He had no beginning. There is no reality outside of himself that did not come from him. There's no force or influence outside of himself that is shaping his character or his power. He truly is self-existent. And there's a theological term that you may or may not have heard of before, but it's, it's this. This is described as the assayity of God. It's from the Latin, two Latin words, a and se, which means from himself. And what it means is that God is so much from himself that he is dependent on Nobody. Now friends, we must plug into God to have life, to have breath, to have wisdom, to have purpose, but God doesn't plug into anything. He is self-existent. And in this vivid illustration of the burning bush that is going on, while he's saying, I am who I am, we see that the fire does not need the bush in order to burn He exists. He's self existent And friends, this is critical for our understanding of how we do ministry. Hear this. The God of the Bible is suitable for all men at all times and in all places. He's the answer for any generation. The boomers, the busters, the Generation X, the millennials, the Generation Z... He's the answer for those who are raised in every religion, Islam, Mormonism, Hinduism, Shintoism, Catholicism, and all of other forms of paganism. He's the answer for every political ideology, whether it be communism, socialism, capitalism, environmentalism, whatever other ism you want to come up with. He is the answer for every ethnic group, every race, every culture, every language group. He is everything he needs to be because he is I am. So, Yahweh, the I am who I am, is everything Moses needs. He's everything Israel needs. He's everything Egypt needs. And He's everything that you and I need and always will be. He's self existent. And that's why He's always relevant. Third, He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end, and as such, he is infinite and eternal. He is not bound by space or time. He created time. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So since God is eternal, he has not been created No, he is the creator, and as such, he is not a God that's been fashioned by human hands. The Apostle Paul describes the Lord in Acts 17, not as a creature, but as the creator. Listen to Acts 17, 24 and 25 as... As Paul is preaching here, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Yahweh has been, is now, and always will be, I am who I am. He exists. He's self existent. He is eternal. Number four, he is inexhaustible. Friends, God never wears out. He isn't heading for retirement, He isn't worried about his sell by date. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. You see, he's the creator of all energy and power. He has no need for the energizer bunny because he never needs recharging. Thank you for that, all right? He never takes a vacation. He never needs to catch an afternoon nap. He can never grow faint. He can never grow weary. And if he were ever to shut down, we would all expire because he holds everything in his hands. He is I am who I am, and so is an unending river of life and the source of our strength each and every day for eternity. He's inexhaustible. He is objective. Although God has blessed us with his breath out word, we still have so much to learn about him. He certainly is mysterious, but he is also objective. In other words, we have been given objective truths about who God is and what he has done and what he desires and expects from us. He's holy, he's he's love, he's just, he's compassionate, he's trustworthy, he's all-powerful. We understand him, then, by virtue of objective truth rather than our own subjective feelings or desires. Someone has rightly said, we were all created in God's image. But ever since our creation, we've been trying to create God in our image. But I am who I am is who he is. He never stops being I am. He is also immutable. Big word. Similar to what we just looked at, but it basically means this. He does not change. You see, he is always consistent and dependable. He is not a fickle, bipolar God who changes his heart and behavior toward his creation for no apparent reason. Now You can count on God being God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always trustworthy. He's always doing what is good. But friends, we're living in a society that imagines that God is saying to them, I am whoever you want me to be. They don't want a God who is, but a God who morphs and changes and transforms into whatever they want him or or think he should be. So if you need him to be angry with your enemies, you got it. If you need him to give you some good stuff, sure. If you need him to be affirming or embracing of whatever, you can make that happen. God can be whatever you imagine him to be. He can be big or small short or tall. He can be a he, a him, a her, an it, or a they. That is the God they are seeking to create, but that is not this God. He doesn't change. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And he's the God of now. And if we're honest, some of us wish that God had answered Moses differently. We really don't want all the focus to be on God, but on us. The answer we want to hear is not, I am, but you are. You're special. You're great. You're awesome. We want God who will turn things around and say, Moses, Moses, enough about me. Let's talk about you, Moses. Moses, come here. Let me give you a divine noogie. Look, Moses, you're incredible. You're so gifted and a perfect fit for this task. You you have a natural heart for justice. You have been trained in the best schools. You have a great story that shows that you are special. The Ark and the Nile and all, I mean, it's amazing. You're going to do great things. You have everything going for you. No! God is, not Moses. God is. He's objective and he doesn't change. And the moment we start to fiddle with that, we are drained of resource and power. Because it's no longer about God. It's about us. And finally, he exists. He's self-existent. He's eternal. He's inexhaustible. He's objective. He's immutable. But he's also impassable. You're like, well, never heard that before. I mean, does he drive down the freeway and he's so good that never can get behind him or get around him and he's always driving the carpool lane? What are you talking about here? Now, this is a theological word that simply conveys the idea that although God condescends to us by speaking about himself using human expressions, he is not subject to suffering, pain, or the whims of human emotion. Let me say that again. It's a theological word that simply conveys the idea that although God condescends to us by speaking about himself using human expressions, he wants us to connect with what he is and who he is in the best way we know how. But he's not subject to suffering, pain, or the whims of human emotion. Friends, he doesn't ever get up on the wrong side of the bed, he never has a hangover. He is never so consumed by his passions that he stops thinking before he acts. He's never had a bad day. His being is pure, it's consistent, and holy. Yes, yes, God is angry at sin. Yes, God is compassionate toward those who are mistreated. Yes, God loves those who are his, but his emotions are. I should say the emotions that he expresses do not sway his character in one way or the other. No, they are pure and righteous expressions of the only being who can be called I am who I am. So maybe one way to say it is this. God has moods, but God does not have swings. He does emote, but those emotions are rooted to his character. Now, this is just a short list, friends. And when you put all of his attributes together, they explain who this I am, who I am is. Friends, he is the eternal, immutable, impassable, inexhaustive, and objective, self-existing one. And friends, the gospel, its power and effect on mankind depends on a God who does not depend on us. Just think through that. The gospel, its power and its effect on mankind depends on a God who does not depend on us. He is the guarantee. He is the warranty. He is the security deposit. And he invites us to be the channels, the tools, the resources, the means through which he works his will. Now, We've looked a long time here at an explanation of what I am, who I am. Now let's think about this being a name, because it's not just an explanation. I want you to notice in our text here that the word here, there's a parallelism. So things are parallel in the text. He says in verse 14, I am has sent me to you. But then down in verse 15, what does he say? The Lord, that would be Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. So in other words, in the text, in God speaking, he's saying, yeah, this is who I am, but this is also my name. There's I am and there's Yahweh, and they're used in parallel. In other words, they, are, they, are, uh, they can be used as, um, what did I say? Don't worry about it. (laughs) They both mean the same thing, and they both refer to the same person, right? That's what I meant. So what's amazing here, friends, is that God would even reveal himself to Moses. Just think about that. I mean, here we are trying to to nuance and parse all this stuff, but but the fact that this I am who I am would condescend to speak to a failure-shepherd 80-year-old has been to say I'm coming down is <laughs> wonder of wonders and by virtue of his revelation to Moses God is also revealing himself to us and this description of God is the fuel that Moses needs to encourage him to stand boldly for what God has called him to do and say friends I'll say it again God backs up his word and his will with himself And all of us who are instructed by God through his word to do his will can find our strength in him and in him alone. Now, God may not be calling you to do the same task that he's calling Moses to do, but he's giving you responsibilities in this world. If you're a man, he's calling you to be a godly man. If you're a woman, he's calling you to be a godly woman. That is a responsibility is put on your shoulders, but he backs it up with himself. If you're married and you're a husband, you have a function. You have a responsibility. If you're a wife, you have a function. You have a responsibility to your spouse, but also before God. And he commands those things, gives instructions for those roles, and he backs it up with himself. You go to work every day. You use your skills at work every day. You're diligent at work every day. It is God who backs up who you are in that moment. We seek to radiate the love of Christ and the the witness of Christ every day. Who is it that backs all that up? It is God. We simply take our responsibilities and are faithful to them, and God is the one who's working through it. And we get so consumed about our strengths and our weakness, our strengths on the side of pride, our weaknesses on the side of fear. And God's saying, don't worry about that. I got this because I am who I am. And friends, it's a reasonable question. It's a formidable answer. But it is also a glorious reality. And the reason I say that is because the scriptures start to unpack now this whole reality. And as we get to the New Testament, we find that there are many places in the New Testament where the author either quotes an Old Testament passage that refers to Yahweh or refers to an Old Testament story where Yahweh is present and he applies it to none other than Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to go through all of them. There's a lot of them. But in other words, there's a clear connection between Jesus and Yahweh. And they, 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 they drive us to the understanding that Jesus is not separate than Yahweh. He is Yahweh. Well, let's think through this. We're just going to look at three. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Jews come to Jesus And they're asking the question in verse 48, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, they're, they're trying to get rid of him. They're trying to abuse him. They're trying to catch him. And Jesus answers, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I'm in verse 52 now. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who died and made you king? Jesus answered, And was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And you seen, or have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him not just because they wanted target practice. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying in that moment. Jesus was identifying himself with the I am that interacted with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He's saying, I am who I am is me. And then he started to move from all the stones being thrown at him. And he's saying, but I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. That's number one. Number two, Revelation chapter one. Oh, I didn't go over these. That's why, by the way, the rest of the Gospel of John, we have all these I am statements throughout the Gospel of John, right? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the true vine. These are all outworkings of the reality of the fact that Jesus is saying, I am who I am. Revelation chapter 1. And again, here we have a picture of Christ in the the beginning of this incredible book. And now as I read through this, I, I I want you to to take all that we've learned so far in Genesis chapter 3 and just begin to think about what seems similar, what seems to, to make sense, what, what images are coming to mind, beginning at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the day the word of God, uh, the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit of the Lord uh, on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice. That was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, his eyes were like the flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held the seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. See, and I just, this is just two of them so far. <laughs> there's, there's a number of them. The point here is this. The New Testament identifies Jesus as Yahweh and as the I am. Jesus identifies himself that way. Now John in the Revelation identifies himself that way. Now I want to I take you to a, a one that's a little bit more controversial, but I, you'll get the point in just a minute. So Jude chapter 1 There's only one chapter, so you shouldn't have a problem finding it. Um, And it's right before Revelation. Jude, in verse 5. Again, think about how this connects to our text. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt... Afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Just ponder that. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That should surprise you. If you have a different translation, the King James, the NIV, or the New American, you will note that the word name Jesus isn't there. It's actually the word Lord. And actually, Lord is the correct translation of the Greek text. The question is, what does Lord mean in that text? See, the early church, in recognizing what the rest of the New Testament says about Jesus being the I Am, understood that what Jude was getting at is that the very voice coming from the burning bush was none other than the voice of Jesus. And friends, this is where we have to put our theological thinking caps on. We as Christians are distinctly Trinitarian. In other words, we believe that God is Trinity. One being existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. And all three persons of the Trinity, be careful here, are homoousion of the same substance. Not homoousion of similar substance. In other words, each of the three persons of the Trinity are of the same substance. And yet they are one being. Okay, They are all I am who I am. You with me there? So what we need to understand is that the Son of God didn't just show up in the New Testament. He wasn't somehow sitting in heaven waiting for his time playing video games and watching Netflix. The Son of God is there in the Old Testament. How do I know that? Well, One of the reasons I know that is because Luke 24, Jesus walks two disciples through the Old Testament, revealing himself. And it says their hearts burned within them. You see, for some reason, American Christianity has thought, oh, Jesus is kind of like this New Testament God, right? There's God the Father, and then he kind of disappears, and there's God the Son, and well, he's gone, and now there's the Holy Spirit. That's modalism, friends. That is not Trinitarian theology. That is a heresy. The I Am is God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And so when the I am is present, it is the Godhead. <laughs> So when it comes to this I am who I am description of God, it is true about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they are one. That is why when we look at Jude 5 in light of what the New Testament teaches, we see that the Lord in the Greek text is speaking about Yahweh and the I am who I am. And since Jesus is I am, he is the voice speaking to Moses and leading the people out of Egypt. You get the reasoning there? Now, friends... As we bring this to a close, I know this is a lot to think about, but A.W. Tozer said it best. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Your understanding of God is critical to living life. This is going to be true for Moses and what God is calling him to do. This is true for us too. A right view of God will settle your heart in an upside-down world. It will give you clarity about the world around you. It will give you conviction about the way the world works. It will give you confidence to live your life for him. It will give you compassion as you rightly see people in bondage to sin. A right view of God, and we're always striving to have a righter view of God but it will settle your heart in an upside down world. The opposite of that, a wrong view of God will leave you unsettled in an upside down world. It will leave you confused rather than clear. It will leave you vacillating from one thing to another rather than driven by conviction. Scripture talks about a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It will leave you daunted and disheartened fueled by uncertainty, it will leave you self-centered and indifferent to the struggle of others. Remember, God backs up his word and his will with himself. And we who are instructed by God through his word to do his will can find strength in him and in him alone. So friends, do you know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jehu? Do you know the God of Moses, Joshua, David, and Nehemiah? Do you know the God of Paul, Peter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Do you know Jesus, Yahweh, the great I Am? This God which the Bible reveals left the splendor of heaven in order to come down and die on a cross to pay for our sins, so that we could be moved from this land to a greater land. As the deliverer, he paid the way. And our call today is to listen to the voice of I Am. And to follow him into the path to the new land of heaven to the new kingdom he's established for us. It's already not yet context. He welcomes you into his family where he promises life and fellowship forevermore, but you must bow the knee to him and embrace him as your Lord, as your Yahweh, as the I am. Lord, help us today. Help us today to ponder your majesty, your magnificence. There's a sense in which, Lord, we have, we have jumped into the, the shallow end of the pool, and there's a whole ocean to swim in, <laughs> seeking to know you more, to discover you more. Help us, Lord, to be in awe of who you are. And to be diligent about grasping a biblical, and careful understanding of who you are. Because, Lord, our understanding of you is the means by which we live our lives for your glory. So, Lord, help us. Help us to see you in the pages of your text. And Lord, help, help solidify our understanding of who you are and all your attributes. And Lord, may we be faithful servants of yours, vessels, means by which you are accomplishing your purpose. We ask in your precious holy name, amen.